So this morning, uh, Victoria's always said, we're thinking about victory uh, and winners. Uh, and I don't know if you've heard this saying before. I'm, I'm sure you have. Uh, I came, I saw, I conquered. It's quite a famous saying. I don't know. Does anyone know who first said that? Come on, Steve. Yeah, Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, after one particularly uh, swift and decisive victory, wrote back to the Senate in Rome in a letter, I came, I saw, I conquered. What marks someone out as a, as a winner or a, a conqueror? In times past, it was probably uh, the victorious general returning to the capital city uh, with the spoils of war and prisoners of war uh, in tow behind him. Uh, in times present, that's probably not the scene we see most often. It might be a, a champion's bus tour through the city. Uh, that's maybe more likely how winners are celebrated uh, in the present time. But in verse 4, uh, the verse that Victoria read to us as well, that verse describes God chi God's children as victors, uh, as conquerors. So verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And you can see that word overcome three times uh, in verses 4 and 5. Uh, it's a word that actually is a, a word particular to John, the apostle. He uses it in his gospel, he uses it in his letter, and he uses this word overcome in the letter to Revelation, the, the, uh, the Revelation as well. Uh, and in, the, in Revelation, it's often translated as, as conquerors. So God's children are, are we're conquerors. So what are they conquerors of? Well, you can see there in verse 4, God's children are conquerors of the world. They have overcome the world. So let's just think about what this victory ent entails for a minute and what we've learned as we've gone through, through this letter. Remember, uh, John's phrase, the world isn't simply the earth. Uh, it's the world in opposition to God. That's how John uses this phrase, the world. It's a world that's turned away from God, a world that's under God's judgment, uh, a world that's passing away. And John says, God's children have overcome the world. We saw back in chapter 2 and verse 16, this victory in includes overcoming uh, the desires for the things in this world. The, John called it the lust of the, the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. God's children overcome the desires for the things in the world. It's also victory over the devil, the evil one. If you look back at chapter 1 and verse 13, John writes, I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Overcoming the world also means victory over false teaching and everything that's, that's not true. At the start of chapter 4, we read that many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then John writes, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one that is in the world. That's encouraging, isn't it? In a world that, that's, where lies are, are spread abroad, a world where those who speak lies seem to outnumber those who speak truth, it's encouraging, isn't it, to know that God's children overcome the world, overcome all lies. 
And this ultimate victory also involves the conquest of the darkness, all that is dark. So chapter 2, verse 8. Yet I am writing to you a new commandment. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And this victory even includes victory over, over death. Victory over death. John writes, Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. This is, a, this is some victory, isn't it? This is a victory that puts all of Julius Caesar's conquests in, in the shade. How do God's children come to enjoy such a victory? How do we recognize these overcoming children of God? Well, we recognize them by their, their faith. By their faith. Look at, at verse 4 again. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. What are you expecting there? Your faith. It's a bit surprising, isn't it? It's not how you would maybe uh, finish that sentence if, if you were, were writing this letter. This is the victory that has overcome the world, your faith. The references to faith all the way through these uh, 12 verses at the start of chapter 5. And God's children get victory over the world by faith. As we think about this faith, just uh, three observations about this faith, and the points are up there on the screen. The first observation is that this faith is faith in Jesus. Faith cannot exist by itself. Faith is not some magical substance that exists in, in a vacuum. Faith needs an object. Trust needs to be placed in something or someone. And, and the faith that overcomes the world is faith in Jesus. Look at verse 1. Everyone who believes in Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. There again in verse 5 as well. The only one who believes that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God. Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So you can see from those two verses, it's not just faith in Jesus, the man that matters. It's, it's faith in Jesus as the Christ and as the, the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. That means he's the Messiah, uh, God's promised king. He's the king of the world. And in that uh, title, Messiah, there's contained uh, the idea of rule. He's the, he's the king. He, he rules. Jesus is the one with all authority. And there's also this idea of rescue. Jesus is the, the savior, the one who brings rescue to God's people. So God's children who overcome the world uh, believe that Jesus is, is the Christ, the one with all authority, the, the savior of the world. They also believe that Jesus is the, the Son of God. We've seen in this letter, haven't we, that for Jesus to be the Son uh, means that he's, he's, he's one with the Father. He shares the same nature as the Father. He's, he's the very likeness of the Father. He's, he reveals to us what God is like. So that's the first observation about this faith. It's, it's faith in Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God. The second observation about this faith is that it's both inclusive and exclusive. So maybe you noticed that when I read out verse uh, 1 and verse 5. 
Verse 1 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Everyone, without, without exception. That's pretty inclusive, isn't it? Everyone who comes to put their confidence in Jesus is a child of God. It doesn't matter what your social status is. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter whether you're in the later years of your life or the earlier years of your life. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And that's what joins us together, isn't it? It's good for us to remember that. It isn't that we all share the same hobbies because uh, we don't. It isn't that we've all lived in the same area for decades because we haven't. What joins us together is that we all have put our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. That will make, that's what makes us part of God's family. So it's inclusive and it's exclusive. So look at verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. All, all people do not share in this victory just by uh, virtue of being human beings. It's only the one who trusts in Jesus. Sometimes when you hear uh, some people uh, teach the Bible, they give the impression uh, that the whole of humanity were all God's children. But that's not what we see here. It's only those who believe in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, who are God's children and share in this victory. So that's the second observation about this faith. It's inclusive and it's exclusive. The third observation uh, about this faith is that it's evidence of the new birth. It's evidence of the new birth, but it's never the only evidence of new birth. So ongoing confidence in the Lord Jesus is evidence that we're, we're born again, that we're, we're part of God's family. Notice the word believes there is in the present tense. This isn't about some profession of faith that someone made many years ago that now leaves no mark on their lives. This is about present faith. The evidence that you've been born again in the past is faith in Jesus in the present today. But faith in Jesus, John wants us to see, is never the only evidence of new birth. Have we, as we've worked our way through this letter, we've seen there's uh, three uh, big kind of planks of evidence that, that mark out God's children. And the first one there is, is faith in Jesus, a right belief about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. The second evidence is love for, for brothers and sisters, love for other Christians. And the third evidence is uh, the obedience test. Are, are the commands of God sh the shaping influence on our lives? The three tests, the belief test, the love test, and the obedience test. And they all, all three come up in verses 2 and 3. Let me read those to you. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. As you read verses 1 to 3, you're trying to tease apart uh, the right belief, uh, the love, uh, and the obedience to commands. And it's, it's hard to see where one ends and the other begins. And that's because they always come as a, a three. 
It's not like there's uh, some people in the church over there and they're the kind of belief people and they, they kind of love words like doctrine and, and theology. And there's other people in the church over, over here and they're the love people and they really enjoy loving one another but they're, they're not too hot on the belief stuff. That's not, not how it works in churches. God's children bear these three marks. Right belief about Jesus, love for brothers and sisters and obedience to God's commands. Of course, that love and that obedience it will not be perfect in this life, but it will be, will be present. The, the child of God is, is never more happy than that when they're walking in, in joyful obedience to God's commands. So that's three things about this faith that overcomes the world. And already uh, you'll see that the way John writes about faith is different to the way often our world uh, and people in our world talk about faith. Often people talk about faith, don't they, as though it exists on its own. Some people have faith and some people don't. Faith is this magical substance, uh, this magical uh, faculty that some people have and others don't. Maybe sometimes when people talk about faith, you get the impression what they're really meaning is a kind of wishful thinking, uh, a leap in, in the dark, trying to believe really hard something that you know is improbable or maybe even impossible. When people sometimes talk about faith, uh, it, it sounds like the opposite of reason. So there's things that are reasonable to believe and then everything else that's just really unreasonable to believe, or that's where, where faith kicks in. This week we've had some uh, pretty cold weather, haven't we? Now imagine you've been out walking uh, through the fields and you come across a, a small lake and it's, it's frozen over. And as you look at the lake, a thought crosses your mind and you think, I wonder if that lake is... Uh, frozen enough for me to walk on? <laughs> Will the ice be, be thick enough? And you say to yourself as you uh, think about that question, you say, I, I believe it is. I, I really, really, really believe. You, you try hard to believe that the ice is thick enough. And then as you're about to take a step out onto the, the lake, you see a, a rabbit. Uh, the rabbit has already uh, taken the plunge and it's out on the lake. Uh, and you see it only for a moment because the next minute the ice cracks and the, the rabbit goes through the lake, through, through the ice and into the lake. What do you do? <laughs> well, you maybe stand on the side and then you try even harder to believe. You try harder to believe that the ice will hold you. And then you step out onto the lake. That's what some people think of, about faith. Faith is trying to believe what you know is impossible. Stepping out into the lake when you've seen uh, the rabbit go through, that's not faith, is it? That's, that's stupidity. Imagine a different scenario. Imagine you're stood by the lake and you're wondering if the ice will, will hold you. And then a man on a tractor comes across the field and he gets to the edge of the lake. He doesn't stop. He just drives straight on, on the lake and over to the other side. What do you do? Well, now you probably have no problem believing that the ice will hold you. You step out onto the lake and you, you walk across. That's the way John uses this word faith. It's, it's confidence. 
faith has a, a content to it. You believe because uh, you've witnessed something. So let's uh, look at verses uh, 6 to 12 and, and see uh, where the children of God have put their confidence, the content of our faith. The content of our faith is God's testimony. Children of God overcome the world by faith, uh, which is confidence in God's testimony. We've already seen, haven't we, that the, the faith of God's children is faith in Jesus. And that's where John directs our attention to, to now. And he speaks about these three witnesses in verse 6. Verse 6, this is he who came, that's Jesus, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. The word testimony or testify comes up eight times just in these six verses. And John wants us to see this morning that our faith is in God's testimony. And that testimony comes to us via these three witnesses, the water, the blood, and the spirit. So first of all, the water. What, what does John mean by, by the water? There's quite a few suggestions as to what John might mean by Jesus Christ coming by the water. I think the two most credible are, are it either refers to his birth. So remember in, in John 3, when Jesus meets with Nicodemus, he talks about someone being born of water and born of the spirit. That which gives birth to flesh is flesh, and that which gives birth to the spirit is spirit. So some people say this being born of water is talking about Jesus' physical birth. And the other suggestion that I think is credible is that it's talking about his baptism. Jesus' baptism when he was immersed in the water. Remember the, the voice from heaven, the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The testimony of God about his Son. I think probably uh, that's what's in view is Jesus' uh, baptism. And I think the baptism includes uh, all of Jesus' identity, who he is. This is my son. That's the water. And then there's the, the testimony of the blood. I think this is more obvious. John has already mentioned the blood in the letter, hasn't he? He's talked about the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. The blood is Jesus on the cross. His blood shed for us. His sacrificial death for our sins. If the, uh, the water refers to Jesus' baptism and his identity, the blood refers to Jesus' mission, what he came to achieve. And central to that mission is, is his death. You can see from verse 6 that it seems to be the, the testimony of the blood that was in danger of being sidelined in this first century church. So John has to say, not, not the water only, but the water and the blood. Jesus the Christ is the Christ crucified. And John is again drawing our attention to the importance of the death of Jesus. We've seen, haven't we, that the false teachers in the first century were, were trying to push the cross off to one side. There was a teaching in, in the early church called Gnosticism. Gnosticism means knowledge. It was a special kind of knowledge. It was a false teaching. And this is what one church historian writes about uh, these 
Gnostics, this teaching. Gnostics taught that the Christ descended on Jesus, the man, at his baptism, possessed him, spoke through him, and left him at his crucifixion. So can you, can you see what they're, they're saying? They're saying the really important bit is the bit between the baptism and uh, the, the death of Jesus. His teaching, his life. And things are similar today, aren't they? In some churches, people have an aversion to talking about the blood of Jesus, the, the death of Jesus. They'll focus on his life and his teachings. And the cross gets sidelined because it puts people off. And yet John reminds us here that the sacrificial death of Jesus for our sins is central to his mission. It's this simple, no blood, no victory. No blood, no faith that overcomes the world. Without the blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Without the blood of the lamb, we do not overcome the evil one. The victorious Christ is, is the crucified Christ, and John wants us to remember. So that's the second witness, the blood, and then the third witness is the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the one, we're told, who testifies to the truth. He brings the witness of Jesus' identity, a mission in history, a witness that was seen by the apostles, and he brings it to us in, in the present day. We, we have the spirit-empowered witness of the apostles in the early church. We have uh, the, the, the written testimony in God's word so that we can know the truth today. These three witnesses, John says, the spirit, the water, and the blood, they all agree, and they provide the grounds for our, our faith because these three witnesses bring to us the very testimony of, of God himself. Look at verse 9 and 10. We have such a firm ground for our faith, don't we? If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. And this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. John is, is saying that their spirit-empowered testimony that we find in the scriptures is the very testimony of God himself. Could you imagine a more sure testimony than that? The testimony of God concerning his son. This language of, of testimony and witness, it's the language of, of the courtroom, isn't it? Imagine the lawyer in the courtroom uh, making his case. And he says, uh, Your Honor, for my next witness, I'd like to call the queen. <laughs> Can you imagine the, the shock that there would be in the courtroom? There'd be, there'd be silence. And the queen would stand up and give an eyewitness statement. That would be pretty strong evidence, wouldn't it, in a court of law? I imagine. How much more sure is the testimony of God, the creator and sustainer of the world, the one who is light with no darkness, the one who is absolute truth, the one who knows all things? This is God's testimony. Imagine back in that courtroom scene, if the queen was to stand up and give her witness, her evidence, and then the prosecution was to stand up and go, it's lies. <laughs> it's lies, Your Honor. She's telling lies. Listen to verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. 
Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. To reject this testimony of God about his son is to call God a liar. That's a shocking thing, isn't it? Again, remember the context. This is these false teachers. And John is saying that is what these false teachers are doing. They are calling God a liar. They're saying he doesn't know his own son. So it's by faith in God's testimony that his children overcome the world. And when it comes to believing this testimony, the stakes really couldn't be any higher, could they? You think that the stakes are high when you walk out on a frozen pond That's nothing compared to the stakes that we see here in verse 11 and 12. What's at stake? Eternal life is at stake. Eternal life is not simply life that lasts forever. It's it's the life of the eternal. It's the life of the, the, the eternal God. It's sharing in his life. That's what's at stake here. And this is this eternal life is not something that God gives people after they die. This eternal life is something that he's already given. Did you notice that in verse 11? And this is the testimony that God gave us. Not God will give us, but God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. If we don't have eternal life in this world, we're not going to have it in the next. If we don't have eternal life before we die, we're not going to have it after we die. And John says this eternal life, this life of God, is given to us in his son. And so the the conclusion there gets to the heart of it, doesn't it? Verse 12. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Let me make a couple of applications as we move towards a close. The first one is to those who are listening who don't have the Son, those who haven't come to trust in Jesus. Listen to what verse 12 says. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. If you don't yet know and trust Jesus, you need to come to know and trust Jesus because eternal life is at stake. I remember talking to a a work colleague a few years ago about Jesus, and he he just said to me, I just don't have your faith. I just don't have your faith. Again, it was that idea that, uh, you know, faith is something that some people have and some people don't. Maybe that's you. You just don't have that faith. Well, faith doesn't exist in a vacuum. Faith needs content, and the content uh, for the faith of the children of God is God's testimony. So if you don't yet trust Jesus, what you need to do is you need uh, to listen to the testimony. (laughs) You need to to read the testimony. Faith isn't uh, going to appear unless we hear God's testimony and we receive it as such, as the testimony of God. So if you don't know... uh, Jesus yet. You need to listen and listen carefully to God's testimony that we find in his word, the Bible. This uh, letter, it's not written to 
to people who don't yet trust Jesus, is it? We know it's written to those who are already trusting Jesus. It's written to Christians. And I think the, the, the lesson to Christians is to, uh, to keep on persevering in the faith, to keep on trusting Jesus. This is how we overcome. This is what victory looks like. Trusting the victorious Christ. Because, do you know what? This victory that we enjoy doesn't always look like victory in this world. It doesn't. There's going to be no you know, champion's bus tour for the children of God in, in this world. It's just not going to happen because our victory is, is over this world. It doesn't always feel victorious when we trust Jesus. Listen to how Paul describes his experience. To this hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. That's the words of, of Paul the Apostle. Faith doesn't always look victorious. In fact, this world will probably celebrate you if you give up believing in Jesus. But as children of God, we must keep trusting Jesus. Don't be, don't be mistaken. It's those who trust in Jesus who overcome, no matter what it looks like in this world. It's those who have the Son who have life. So keep on believing. I want to close with just uh, reading a verse from John Chapter 16, verse 33. This is Jesus as he goes to, the, goes to the cross. He's in the upper room with his disciples on the night before he died. And he says, in this world, you will have trials. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So keep on trusting Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have won a great victory. We thank you that through your death and resurrection you have conquered. You've conquered sin and death. You've con conquered Satan and his lies. And we thank you that we come to share in that victory, Lord Jesus, simply by trusting you. Dear Father, we pray for any who do not yet know Jesus. We ask that you would uh, help them to receive uh, your testimony about your son. We pray for those of us who do trust Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would keep us persevering in the faith. Lord, we thank you again for your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.